Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to As a Woman, Fertility Hormones and Beyond. I'm your host, Dr. Natalie Crawford, and I am a board-certified OBGYN and fertility physician and also co-founder of Fora Fertility in Austin, Texas. With the goal of educating and empowering women, each week on this podcast, I discuss health and fertility and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community of collaboration that amplifies others as a woman. I hope you enjoy the episode. You are listening to As a Woman. This week, we are talking about what you need to know before you get pregnant or before you try to get pregnant. All about the preconception period and what you should know or have tested before you get pregnant. Before we dive into this, I want to talk about this week's fertility in the news. And we are talking about Hillary Swank and her miracle pregnancy of twins. First of all, big disclaimer celebrities owe us nothing. There is absolutely no reason why we should be talking about somebody's pregnancy or their fertility journey. That being said, many celebrities use the opportunity for education and to talk about what they went through to help break down barriers, and that's amazing. However, it is completely fine and appropriate that somebody wants to keep it to themselves. So Hillary Swank, miracle twin pregnancy, so happy for her, but a few things. Number one. I'm not her doctor. Number two, the odds of getting pregnant at age 48 are extremely low. The odds of getting pregnant with twins naturally or spontaneously, probably about one in a million at age 48. Interestingly, getting pregnant with multiples or twins does happen more as you have higher FSH levels or as you get older. So people who actually do conceive at older ages are more likely to have twins than people who are younger when we talk about spontaneous pregnancies. Now, is that the likely way she got pregnant? No. A good way to think about this is if you think about the Duggars. Now, not to talk about the Duggars or their family choices, but remember, they were on that 19 Kids and Counting show. So here is somebody never used any type of birth control, obviously very, very fertile, just gets pregnant all the time. Her last pregnancy that made it to a live birth was at age around 40. After that, conceived one time and had a miscarriage, at least that we know about. So in somebody who had 19 births throughout her reproductive years, very fertile, somebody who does not have infertility, could not get pregnant with a live birth after age 41 and presumably was not preventing a pregnancy. And if that is showing us with somebody who's very fertile, what happens naturally, that's a good testimony to understand what happens in nature. The odds of getting pregnant decrease significantly, especially as we get older, even if you're fertile. So do we think that Hillary Swank got pregnant for the very first time ever, at least that we're aware of, naturally with twins at 48? Maybe, totally, it could happen. It is not probable. So more likely this is either from freezing eggs or embryos at a younger age or from doing donor egg IVF. 
I think it's important to say things like this because what will happen is I will have patience or you may read that article and say, well, why am I being told at age 46 that I need to do donor eggs? Because here we go. Here's a celebrity who was able to get pregnant. She has not disclosed the details of her conception, nor are we entitled to know, so we cannot presume anything. Therefore, we have to look at statistics and what naturally happens, and that is that you have almost no genetically normal eggs at age 48. The odds of having two genetically normal eggs both ovulate the same cycle, extremely unlikely. So even though I am so happy for her, I do just want other people to know that this is really an outlying case. If she did get pregnant spontaneously, I'm thrilled for her. If she did get pregnant with fertility treatments, I'm thrilled for her. I don't care if it's donor egg or her own egg or what she went through. But most clinics will not do IVF with your own eggs at age 48 because the odds are so low. So if she did conceive with assisted reproduction, it is either donor eggs or she froze eggs or embryos at a younger age. So that's just showing us the power of preserving your fertility if you know you're waiting to get pregnant. So that's been a hot topic, and I hope that helps you just understand the context of what you may be seeing in the news. Everybody's calling it just a miracle conception. Now, let's talk about what to do before you get pregnant. And I always think this is a period of time where we do not capitalize enough. Meaning if you have delayed getting pregnant and now you're ready to get pregnant, you are probably very excited or interested or searching for what to do and what to know. So the first thing I want to say is, did you know your OBGYN would love to see you for what we call a preconception visit? If you haven't been to an OBGYN, which could be the case because I know some people see family doctors or internal medicine doctors and they do your pap smears and until you get pregnant... Maybe you haven't had a need for an OBGYN, but this is a good time to go establish with an office in your town that you think you want to deliver you and get to meet them, but also to have time to sit down with your OBGYN and have them go over some things that are important to know preconception. So some people don't even know that this is an option. And I know that when you go in and out of your OB's office for your annual exam, those are really quick visits and maybe you don't get to know them very well. You don't feel like you have much time to talk. That's just the nature of that visit. A preconception consult is actually very different. So it's a consultation and by nature of it, they're meant to talk to you and counsel you, make sure that there any blood work that needs to be checked is updated, make sure your pap's up to date. But it is an educational based visit, which is actually very different than just your pap smear or your annual. So number one, I think it's a great opportunity to get to know a clinic, establish care, and get some information. At that visit, your doctor is going to try to talk to, are there any high-level issues that we think we need to know of ahead of time? So some of these could be other medical problems. We want them to be in best control before you get pregnant as possible. So things like diabetes or thyroid disease. We want to make sure you're on appropriate medications and your levels are all clear for any prior medical condition. There may be some instances where your OBGYN wants you to go see a high-risk specialist. So just like I'm a fertility doctor, that's reproductive endocrinology and infertility, REI. That's a specialist after OBGYN training. So I did four years at OBGYN and then three years of REI to be double board certified. The same thing exists for high-risk OBGYN, and they are called MFNs or maternal fetal medicine specialists. 
And in that case, they do four years of OBGYN and then three years of an MFM fellowship. They see people when the pregnancy gets complicated. So suddenly when you develop issues, maybe of twins, preeclampsia, cholestasis, gestational diabetes, they can hop in. But if you have pre-existing medical conditions, you may see them from the get-go. So really talking to your OB because they may highlight, hey, due to this thing in your history, I actually want you to go see an MFM so we can come up with a good plan once you're pregnant. Always better to have a plan than to not have. Also at your preconception visit, your doctor is going to talk to you about what we call preconception labs. And these are basic blood tests that we really love to check before you are pregnant. And that's because we can intervene before you're pregnant. And sometimes we can't once you are pregnant. The basic preconception blood work typically includes your blood type, something called an antibody screen to see if there's anything that could be potentially in your red blood cells that could interact with the baby's blood. So these things can cause different incompatibilities between mom and baby's blood. So we check an antibody screen to see if you have any of those antibodies present in your blood, which potentially could impact or attack the red blood cells of the baby. So that's your blood type and antibody screen. Then we're going to want to check to make sure you don't have any anemia. So usually that's a hemoglobin. And then we like to check preconception genetic carrier screening. I think this is one of the most important things. This is a test that could totally change your course of action. Very often, I see couples come to me for IVF because they have a child that is either passed or is affected with a severe genetic disease. And they did not find this out until they were pregnant or that child passed or that child was born. So People can be silent carriers of diseases. This is when a disease is what we call autosomal recessive. And if you have that and your partner has that, you're typically perfectly fine. However, the baby has a chance of inheriting those genes. So the typical inheritance pattern for autosomal recessive diseases is 25% will get both copies of the affected gene. 25% will get no copies of the affected gene, and then 50% will get copies of one. So you'll have one normal, one affected. Therefore, the baby would be a silent carrier also. However, some of these diseases could be terrible when they are lethal. So there's things like Bardet-Beidel or Pearson syndrome, which are devastating outcomes. There are some others that can cause severe disability, potentially like cystic fibrosis or spinal muscular atrophy. If you have the opportunity to get genetic carrier screening done, which is a blood tube sample of your own blood before you get pregnant and you and your partner are co-carriers for the same thing. So not you carry something, they carry something. That's fine. But if you co-carry the same thing, you deserve the opportunity to talk to a genetic counselor and then an REI like myself to talk about doing IVF solely for the purpose of genetic testing and potentially saving your child or yourself of the heartache or hardship that could come from one of these diagnoses. So that test truly could change the course of your journey. You might stop trying to conceive and instead go see an REI. Another thing we tend to check for is the birth defect causing viruses that we have vaccines for. So I know everybody thinks about vaccines because we talk about the COVID vaccine and the flu shot vaccine. 
which if you're trying to get pregnant, you should go get your boosters and get up to date on those because pregnant people who get COVID or flu have poor maternal outcomes. And obviously we do not want that to happen, but specifically varicella and rubella. So chickenpox or rubella is the R in MMR. These are vaccine series that now you people are getting as a child. If you're a little bit older, like my age, you didn't get the varicella vaccine. You went to a chickenpox party. However, if you are not protected against rubella and varicella and you get infected while you are pregnant, then you're at risk to have your baby develop well-known birth defects and they can be pretty bad. And so to prevent that, if you are not immune, which means your antibody levels are not high enough to protect you against an exposure, then we recommend you get a booster shot so that you are protected before you get pregnant. And because of the nature of these viruses, you can't get that vaccine when you're pregnant. That one is incompatible with pregnancy. So you have to get the vaccine beforehand to be pregnant. And because we know that people are not vaccinating their children as much as we've seen in prior, we are at risk to see these diseases in greater prevalence. So specifically, if you work in healthcare or in child care, you're around people a lot, we really want you to be protected. And then there's some other tests that we tend to do, like a vitamin D level to see if you need any extra vitamin D, some infectious disease testing, an updated pap smear, and maybe a thyroid based on your medical history. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune. And luckily, I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. The best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands, but Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the cost of the middleman, passing the saving to us, and only working with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. I personally cannot wait to wear my cute tan linen set this summer. So it's your turn to get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash A-A-W for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash A-A-W to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash A-A-W. Thank you, Quince. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Apostrophe. With the temperatures starting to warm up, I'm so excited the summer is around the corner and getting ready and looking forward to the summer months. But I know that when I'm outside, enjoying nature, I need to pick up supplies to prepare myself for summer adventures. And if you want to get your skin glowing in time for summer, it's time for you to get started with Apostrophe, who is sponsoring this episode. Apostrophe's goal is to help you feel confident in your own skin. So whether you're dealing with breakouts, signs of aging, or acne scarring, Apostrophe will help you love the skin you're in. I personally love that you get access to an expert dermatology team, a tailored treatment plan. It's simple to sign up for your first visit, and there is no in-person appointment or trip to the pharmacy needed. We have a special deal for our audience. Get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com slash A-A-W when you use our code A-A-W. That's a savings of $15. This code is only available to our listeners. 
to get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash AAW and click get started. Then use the code AAW at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you, Apostrophe, for sponsoring this episode. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know that women were excluded from clinical research policy by federal law until 1993? But women belong in scientific research. They're essential and Ritual knows this. I choose Ritual Multivitamin every day because it is easy to take and I know that I am getting high quality and traceable ingredients in a clean and bioavailable forms. In fact, Ritual conducted a university-led human clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy, and the results showed increase in vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. No my shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin that you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash A-A-W. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash A-A-W for 25% off. Thank you, Ritual. So that's your preconception appointment in the lab work part. Then you're going to talk about, or you should talk about, ways to get pregnant or warning signs from your body. And so this is something we can just think about now without even going to the doctor. If you're wanting to get pregnant, what should you do? What should you know? So number one, your period is a vital sign. This means your period should come regularly and predictably around the same time every month. You should be able to look at a calendar and pick within one to two days of accuracy when that period's coming. And if you look at your app, if you have an app that's predicting when your period's coming, it should tell you within one to two days of certainty when it's coming. And if it's off by more than that, something's off with your period. And these things that are off can sometimes reflect underlying issues with ovulation disorders, endocrine disruptions like PCOS, thyroid disease, prolactin abnormalities, amenorrhea like hypothalamic disease. Most of us tend to think there's stages where You can have hypothalamic dysfunction, even if you're not in pure amenorrhea, and also running out of eggs or ovarian aging. So your period can indicate some things are abnormal. Big warning signs are a change from the past. If you tell me, hey, 10 years ago, my periods were every 29 days, but now they're every 24 days. I'm worried that something has changed, and I'm worried that that thing is that now you're running out of eggs. Checking ovarian reserve is not standard at a preconception visit. It is something we usually do in the context of infertility. However, if you are wanting to have multiple children, it is not unreasonable to ask for an AMH blood test. They're drawing your blood anyway. If you found out you had an abnormal AMH and you would do something about that, meaning maybe you're just having this visit to prepare to conceive in the future, and if you got back a low AMH, meaning you have fewer eggs, and less time to grow your family, you might start sooner, or you really want to have more than one child. So you might come see a doctor like me to consider freezing your eggs or freezing your embryos or treatment to try to get pregnant faster. Well, then that validates the test. If you're not going to do anything with the data, the argument is why check it? Because we know that low AMH values or having fewer eggs does not impact natural fertility. If we think about why, let's just do a really quick menstrual cycle overview. 
I like to think about inside the ovary that there is a vault where all your eggs are kept. Every month, a group of eggs comes out of the vault. From that group, each egg grows inside a follicle, and the number of follicles that are sent out of the vault corresponds to how many you have remaining, meaning when you have a lot of eggs left, more come out of the vault every month. And as you're running out of eggs, fewer eggs come out of the vault every month. Now, your brain sends out follicle-stimulating hormone while you're on your period, FSH. FSH is a well-named hormone that talks to a follicle and gets it to start growing. As that follicle grows, the egg inside starts to mature and makes estrogen. This estrogen prepares the uterus for a pregnancy, but also starts to tell the brain that we have a maturing egg. When that estrogen is high for a prolonged period of time, so about 200 picograms for 50 hours, the brain then will send out an LH surge. And this is the first time the body sees LH. And this tells your follicle to rupture and you ovulate and the egg is released and then could potentially be fertilized. That follicle reforms and makes a corpus luteum, which makes progesterone in pulses in response to LH pulses in the entire luteal phase. And if there's no pregnancy, corpus luteum dies because it can only live about two weeks. Progesterone then drops. And then that is a signal to bleed or to get a period. That's all important because number one, it's synchronized really well. So if something's messed up there and you have irregularity, then that's a sign that something's not working in your body. But number two, your body doesn't really care if you have five eggs outside that vault or 25. If you are ovulating, you have one that is being released. So you have the same chance of getting pregnant as everybody else your age. And so we don't tell or counsel people that, oh my gosh, you have a low AMH, you're going to have a hard time getting pregnant. Nope. However, if you have a low AMH, we are concerned that you will not be able to conceive for as long of a time because you're going to run out of eggs sooner, go into menopause earlier. But also, that number is highly, highly correlated with how many eggs we get in an IVF cycle. So in my brain, if there was any reason why you might need IVF, tubes blocked, abnormal sperm, you're older, you carry a genetic disease, man, I want to intervene and do that sooner while you still have the eggs versus waiting longer when you have fewer eggs. Because IVF is directly correlated, IVF success correlated with how old you are, how many eggs you have. The younger you are and the more eggs you have, the better. So understanding that's going to be important. The other thing to understand is that your age does matter. So not to be the Debbie Downer that's talking about age. I already talked about at the beginning how at age 48, about a one in a million chance that you have spontaneous twins. We want to understand what is our chance at our current age. This is to set the stage for what it's going to be like when we get pregnant. So overall, if we think about your chance of getting pregnant per month, if you're trying to conceive from about age 30 to 33, if you've never been pregnant in the past, it's around 15 to 20%. So it's not terrible. If you are older than that, so 34 to 37, it's about 10 to 12% per month. So it drops. And then if you're 38 to 40, it's about 5% per month. And if you're over age 40, it's less than five. It's usually about 3% per month. These numbers are all taken from a study called Time to Conceive, which my mentor and fellowship was the primary investigator on the study. And she looked at 
people who did not have a diagnosis of infertility, who were 30 and older, who were trying to get pregnant. And it was an observational study where we just followed them to see what happened naturally. If you are Paris, meaning you've had babies in the past, then your chance of getting pregnant was higher at most points. And that's because if you've had a child before, you know that your things in your body have worked, at least if you've had a child with that partner. Certainly, secondary infertility is a real thing, so age still is very impactful. But if you'd had a previous child, then your chance of getting pregnant between age 30 to 35 was around 20 to 25 percent, 36 to 39, about 15 to 18 percent, 40 was about 10 percent, and then 42 and older was a lo- was less than 10, but still overall higher than if you've never had a child. This is really important. And how I use this data to counsel patients is if you are waiting to start your family, then you should pay attention to your age and be aware of these rates of conception. And if you want to have multiple children, we need to think about what makes sense as far as your future family size. I always say, what is your goal? If you could write the book of how this looks, what does it look like? And does that make sense with what we know? It very well might. I have people who see me for a fertility testing preconception visit. We test things. They're all fine. We talk about things and we decide, hey, you're just going to try naturally for X amount of time. And if you're not pregnant, then we already have the data we need to accelerate into future treatment. Or sometimes we find something and we say, gosh, with that family size and this factor, that's not really smart. We need to freeze some embryos. Or, oh my goodness, that chlamydia you had when you were 22 looks like it blocked both your fallopian tubes and you're not going to get pregnant without IVF. So we don't need to waste time trying naturally. That's not going to happen. We need to just go right to IVF. So you don't know what you don't know. And so understanding your age is just going to be important in what is your focal. So if there's other warning signs that things are wrong, I always want you to consider getting them evaluated. So I just mentioned one, history of chlamydia or history of severely painful periods or concern or diagnosis of endometriosis. In those circumstances, it makes a lot of sense to get a test to make sure your fallopian tubes are open since we know tubal disease can come with that. The next one is if you have a partner who's got sperm and there's issues with libido, erection, ejaculation, if there's any history of testicle or inguinal surgery, history of use of testosterone or anabolic steroids. Those are indications to just get a semen analysis. That's a relatively easy test. And depending on what we find, we might recommend lifestyle interventions, medical treatment, or acceleration of treatment to try to get you pregnant faster. And if your periods are not regular and predictable every month, then we recommend an evaluation to see if there's PCOS, thyroid disease, prolactin abnormalities, or if you're running out of eggs, so that we know what we might be dealing with, because obviously ovulating is a big part of getting pregnant. Let's presume everything's fine. You get a preconception visit, you get some blood work tested, there's no genetic abnormalities, your periods are perfect, you have none of those risk factors. What should you know now? All right, well, let's just go over a few things that I like to tell patients. If you're coming off birth control, I really like you to stop your oral contraceptives if you're taking the pill about three months before you get pregnant. This is because it can take some time for that suppression, right? The birth control pill is ethanol, estradiol, and a progestin. 
They work by telling the brain not to send out any FSH and LH. Well, we want that to wear off before you start trying to get pregnant and tracking ovulation. And the longer you've taken the pill, it might take a little bit longer for the brain and ovary connection to kick back in. So what I want you to do, stop the pill about three months before you're ready so you can track your cycles. And when we say track your cycles, when is the first day of your period? First day of full flow. And then when does the next period come? First day of full flow. Are there any spotting, anything abnormal with your cycle in between or before that period begins? If you have an IUD, let's say you have a copper IUD, then you can just take it out right when you're ready to get pregnant. There's really no washout period. There's no hormones. There's no impact inside the uterus. If you have a progesterone-based IUD, Mirena, Kylina, Skyla, any of those, that's a daily progesterone right at the uterine level, and that can sometimes thin out the lining. So if you have normal, regular periods, then I'm not worried. You'll take out your IUD and you can start trying the next month. But if you have no periods or very, very light periods, I really want you to take that IUD out about three to six months before you want to get pregnant to give your body time to have ovulatory cycles and build up that uterine lining with some nice unopposed estrogen, which means estrogen in the setting of no progesterone. And then your other longer acting forms of contraception. So the Nexplanon, which is, you know, the insert that goes in your arm, that one I usually recommend taking out about three months before. But the very worst is the Depo-Provera shot. So Depo-Provera, which is the shot, is a high-dose progesterone. It only prevents at very high levels ovulation for three months. And that's why if you get the shot, you need it every three months. However, it can last in your system for up to 18 months. So, oh my gosh, if you want to get pregnant in the future, no more depo transition over to another type of contraception. Now, if your periods are nice and regular and you want to track them, what does that mean? How do you do it? So apps have been shown in studies to be unreliable at detecting ovulation. That does not mean they're always unreliable. And if you use some other tracking methods and your app on the calendar corresponds after a few months, yeah, you can just rely on it. But for many people, let's remember that your app is just using the calendar method. The calendar method means it is taking whatever you tell it as your cycle length and it is taking a standard luteal phase. Remember, that's the length of the corpus luteum and it's subtracting that and then predicting ovulation based on that. So standard length of luteal phase, 14 days. So if you tell the app, my period is 34 days long, it's going to say, great, you ovulate on cycle day 20. And if you tell the app, my period cycle is 26 days long, it'll say, great, you ovulate on cycle day 12. It then backs itself up for the five days before that and calls that your high fertility days. These are your five high fertility days. This is the day you ovulate. That is all that it does. And as your cycles change every month and you input data, it does refine its calculation based on what you're telling it. So when you open it up, if it says, what is your cycle length? And you say 30 days. And then your next five cycles are 24 days, 25, 26, 23, 29. It's constantly changing that calculation a little bit. But it's probably falsely predicting your ovulation on every one of those days. So the app is the calendar method. These are good if you have very regular predictable periods. If you have intercourse, a few times a week, three times a week, you're going to hit most of the fertile windows and sperm can live for five days. So I also don't love when people obsess over tracking if they are able to have frequent intercourse. 
So do not feel like you have to have less intercourse in order to get pregnant. There are some studies where people say, is it better to have every other day or every day intercourse? It really doesn't matter. What we don't want is you to have everyday intercourse and then be sick of it by the time you actually are ovulating. So that's where studies tell us every other day is sufficient because sperm can live up to five days. The egg only lives 24 hours. But if you're not used to having that much intercourse, which is most couples, then targeting, timing that intercourse with ovulation, that does improve your pregnancy rate. So if you want to get pregnant faster, you should track your cycles. So if you're doing that, what that means is that we want to determine when you ovulate. The calendar method is the one way, which we already talked about. That's what the app uses. You can also use basal body temperature, not my most favorite way. This is where you take a very specific thermometer, measure your temperature at the same time every morning before you get out of bed, and you wait to see a shift in a rise in temperature, which is going to happen once your body starts making progesterone, which is after ovulation. BBT helps confirm that you ovulated. It is very tricky. Like if you drink alcohol or go to bed at a different time or you're sick, it's all going to be off. People who do BBT, I like it best in a device form, like a wearable. Those tend to cost more and it's more predictive, meaning if you're constantly getting a surge the same day and you have very regular cycles, it can help you confirm when you ovulate in the next cycle. So I think about it like a very regular periods and you're trying to fine tune your calendar method by adding or supplementing with BBT. I really don't recommend it for most patients. I, my favorite is OBK's ovulation predictor kits. This is where you're testing for that LH surge. Remember, you only care about the surge the first time it comes because it's going to pulse the entire luteal phase. So once you get a positive, stop checking. So you're trying to catch that first surge. So you want to start a little earlier for most people. That is going to be around cycle day nine or 10. You should use one ovulation predictor kit a day between 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. The only exception I say is if you're a night shifter, your body may not be quite as in sync. So typical circadian rhythm, LH is released from the brain in the early morning, filters through our kidneys and gets into our urine by mid-morning. So that middle of the day is perfect. If it's negative, you can catch it the next day. Then that day is considered the LH surge day, which is the day before ovulation. If you're a night shifter, I do like you to check it twice, like once when you get home from your shift and then once when you wake up in the afternoon before you go back, just because your body may not release it at the same time. And we don't want to miss it since that surge can be metabolized pretty quickly in most people. So once you get a positive do not waste the test. Do not check anymore. They are expensive. The positive surge is the day before you ovulate. Time intercourse, the day of the surge, and the next day. Those are your money days. And then the other option, cervical mucus. If you're very in tune with your body, you can put your fingers inside your vagina, pull out cervical mucus, and you stretch it between your fingers. I always say you know it when you see it. Type 4 cervical mucus comes from very high estrogen levels. It's like sticky, like egg whites and stretchy. That's considered your ovulation day, and that would be your day to target intercourse. And so tracking cycles can be beneficial to try to help you get pregnant faster. So I always say, why not? If you're wanting to get pregnant, let's track. They also can identify problems. So if you're getting very irregular ovulatory patterns, those can be identified with your tracking. And then when to see a fertility doctor. So abnormal genetic carrier screening. If your OB has screened you and you have any problems like blocked fallopian tubes or abnormal semen analysis, 
or you have some of those risk factors in your history and you just want testing, you're allowed to come see me for testing also. Also, if your periods are abnormal, you should see your OBGYN or a fertility doctor if you're trying to get pregnant. Outside of that, if everything's good and you're trying to get pregnant, the definition of infertility is trying to get pregnant for one year if you're under age 35, six months if you're over age 35. So those are those metrics where if you have not got pregnant by one year, if you're younger or six months, if you're over age 35, you need to call and schedule an appointment with an REI. Or if you're age 40 and older, we really recommend seeing you right at the beginning when you're just trying to get pregnant. And that is because we would rather test you early and know what we're dealing with before you go try to get pregnant because time is just not quite as much on your side and we want to do everything possible. All right. Well, now I want to go into for fertility sake, FFS. This is our weekly Q&A where you ask questions on my Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD, or you can call them in to the As Woman voicemail 657-229-3672. We have an entire episode answering your fertility questions, and we're going to do that again. So we would love to hear your questions on the voicemail, or you can ask them every week on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD. So let's dive in to see what questions we have right here. Why do we do a round of birth control prior to an IVF egg retrieval? This is a great question. As we talked about earlier in the episode, birth control works to tell the brain to stop sending out FSH. When we don't send out FSH and we think about FSH as the food that gets an egg to grow, essentially we're starving the eggs for a short period of time and I like to consider that priming them getting their receptors really ready and wanting FSH and lining them up on the starting line so they can all stay synchronized together. So most of the time we do it to synchronize the cohort, meaning the point of IVF is to go against nature. Your body naturally, your brain and your ovaries want to have just one egg that releases every month. And we are trying to get your body to grow as many eggs as have come out of the vault that month. And so we really need to break up that brain ovary communication system and allow the ovary to be overridden and get all those eggs to grow. And very often, a short course of birth control as part of the suppression can help. I will say that's not for everybody. I do not use birth control in every cycle. It depends on the patient and the circumstance, how many eggs they have, how old they are, their medical problems. Everybody is different. All right, next, freaking out over progesterone shots. Are suppositories equally effective? This is talking about a frozen embryo transfer in IVF cycles. So when we do IVF, there's many ways to do it. But for the most part, we grow a group of eggs, take them out of your body, fertilize them in a lab, make embryos. And the embryos are typically frozen. And then you undergo a cycle where we get the lining of the uterus to grow and then we give you progesterone. So we're replicating what happens in nature. And then we put an embryo in on the specific day. When you do a frozen embryo transfer, there are a couple different protocol types. One is what I essentially just described. And that is where we are synthetically growing the lining with estrogen. This is considered a controlled cycle. And in such, we need to replace your progesterone completely because your body's not making any. So you do need injectable progesterone. Studies show that you need injectable progesterone daily or every third day with vaginal progesterone. Those are the two options. Vaginal progesterone alone is no longer shown to be as efficacious, meaning you have lower pregnancy rates in controlled or medicated frozen embryo transfers 
with a vaginal or oral progesterone alone, some intramuscular progesterone is needed. Now, there is a different type of cycle called a natural cycle or a modified natural. The whole premise is different. You get the body to ovulate. As it ovulates, the egg makes estrogen. That estrogen grows the lining. After you ovulate, the corpus luteum makes progesterone. And so in that cycle type, giving vaginal progesterone is fine and sufficient in what most people do. So not everybody's a candidate for both cycles. You really need to have a talk with your doctor about what is best for you. I have unexplained anovulation. Letrozole worked at first, but now I don't respond. And why? This does happen when we use an oral ovulation induction agent, either Clomid or Letrozole, and we do get an initial response and then we don't. I usually explain this to patients as the ovary is pretty stubborn. Sometimes we can trick it a time or two, but then you become a little refractory to it. When we think about how these medications work, Clomid works by binding to estrogen receptors in the brain. So the brain senses that there is no more estrogen and then it sends out a spike of FSH in response. Your brain has to interpret that appropriately in order for it to work. Same with letrozole. With letrozole, it is a medication called an aromatase inhibitor that eats up estrogen as it circulates in your bloodstream. So the brain says, hey, there's less estrogen. Let me send out a surge of FSH to try to get an egg to grow because eggs make estrogen. Now, Sometimes you get response. We always try to go and give you response at the lowest dose possible. So if you don't respond, sometimes we have to stair step it up. And I've definitely had patients who responded to one dose the next month. They don't. We have to stair step it. And sometimes we max it out without getting any response or getting a safe response. Remember that the point of ovulation induction is to get one or two eggs to grow for the most part, sometimes three, depending on your age, but not more than that. So I do have some patients that cannot. Ovulate just one, two, or three. They either have nothing or they have five or six where it's too dangerous. And in those people, they're really good candidates to go on to IVF. All right, what is the correct next step after a failed FET? So number one, even in perfect scenarios with genetically normal embryos, euploid embryos, and a beautiful looking lining and a cycle that looks textbook, we see live birth rates of about 60 to 65% across the nation. That's standard. So that right away tells you that at least a third of the time, if not more, an embryo that looks great and a body that looks perfect is not going to work. This does not mean that it is your body or the protocol's fault. It means there's so much that we do not know about embryos as to what makes an embryo a baby. There's embryo competency, cells have to divide. The metabolism has to be working. There's so much that happens to take a ball of cells into a living creature. And I think that's really important. Almost every fertility doctor who will counsel you, myself included, will say, you need to think that it will take you two transfers to get to a baby. Transfer number one, transfer number two, because 60 to 65 is not 100. It's way better than those numbers we talked about at the beginning, age-related chances of getting pregnant per month. And that was just getting pregnant, not even live birth or accounting for rates of miscarriage as you get older, but just getting pregnant numbers. These are live birth numbers, but still, there's a lot that we don't know about what makes IVF successful. So do not blame yourself. It is not wrong for your team to just say the appropriate next step is to do another transfer because you're falling right on the odds. Now, if you do not have many embryos, this is where we sometimes consider 
having an appointment or discussing alternatives. So it's one thing if you have six normal embryos, it's another if you only had two, right? I talk to my patients. What are your goals? Do we have enough embryos to get those goals? Should we consider another IVF cycle to get more embryos in light of this one not working? Were there any concerns with the protocol? Did you feel okay? Should I change the protocol for any reason? What would that look like? Should we consider an ERA, an endometrial receptivity test? And transparency, data, if anything, shows that this test is probably not warranted in the majority of people, but everybody's different, so it warrants a discussion. Should you consider any blood work to see if there's any reason? Diabetes, thyroid, vitamin D, clotting disorders, have those been tested in the past? Should there be any concern for the inside of the uterus? Should you have another saline ultrasound? Should you have a hysteroscopy? Have the fallopian tubes been checked? Have you made sure there's no hydrosalpinks? Those are the things that should go through your brain or your doctor's brain. But most of the time, the appropriate next step is to just go to another transfer because that's how the odds fall. And definitely do not blame yourself or your body. But you're never wrong to have an appointment with your doctor and go through the cycle and make a game plan for what's next. All right. Well, I hope you liked this episode and this week's FFS. As always, you can ask questions on my Instagram on Mondays at Natalie Crawford MD, and the voicemail is 657-229-3672. We are going to be doing about quarterly an episode where I answer your questions. Recently recorded one episode before this, so super fun. So leave a voicemail if you want your question answered, 657-229-3672. Thanks so much, friends. Thank you all for listening to As a Woman. It would mean so much if you could rate, review, and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every Sunday. I hope you learned something new, and I hope you share it with someone in your life. Be sure to follow along on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD, and check out the YouTube channel, Natalie Crawford MD. If you're interested in becoming a patient, you can also follow Fora Fertility. I'm so thrilled to have you here, part of the community that amplifies others as a woman.